Welcome to the Bad and Pitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And Amy's back, everybody. Yay! <laughs> Woo! Literally, literally no one missed me. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. I, you had, we missed you. We had some pretty stellar uh, guest hosts, so it's okay. I get it. It's oh, fine. Please. It's fine. <laughs> Amy, they are a pale comparison <laughs> to what you consistently add to this podcast oh i thank you i'm blushing i wasn't fishing for that or anything i know but i think you you're not a fisher i think i think <laughs> i think listeners had like a, probably a really enjoyable five weeks in my absence i don't feel guilty at all no nor, <laughs> nor should you like i always like i don't no nobody should be begrudged a vacation i don't care you're a lawyer i saw how much you worked you worked during the week you work on weekends you work all the time and then you're here with us and you work even more Mm -hmm. so i'm just saying that i get it um and you know your sort of legal mind was missed oh well okay yes which you will which which she will flex later we'll try to work that in if we can (laughs) (laughs) totally so tell us about your vacation okay do you want to say where you went or um well you know i don't want to fully get into it but yeah i went to italy and spain and it was it was nice oh yeah good so which which parts of spain and italy did you hit um i did you know, it was my first time by going to both places, so I kind of hit the, the highlights or the, the major tourist destinations. So, you know, did the Rome, Florence, Venice, Cinque Terre, Pisa, uh, Tuscany Circuit in Italy, and then I did Barcelona, Valencia, Sevilla, Granada, and Madrid in Spain. So covered a fair bit of ground, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, it was good. Wow. Okay, so... Um That's part of sort of my like, it's sort of, okay, so I want to go on vacation. I usually, when I go on vacation, I pick areas that I studied art about. Yeah. And so like, yeah, so it'll be like, an. I feel like all my vacations are like art history tours. That's perfect. That's awesome. It's Yeah. yeah. And I saw that you were eating a wonderful cannoli with pistachio on it. And I'm a lover of pistachios, and I literally a lot was of like pistachio gelato too. That was not oh pictured. My yeah. Gosh. Okay. And I was, <laughs> I literally everybody else was like, "Oh, this looks great." I'm like, "Is that pistachio?" Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So we did stalk your Instagram a little That's bit. That's fair. All right. So um, I also want to give our listeners a shout out. You guys called me in from the last episode about um you know not mentioning uh trans men in terms of what we're talking about in terms of reproductive rights and stuff and i want to thank everybody who wrote in and you know basically said hey i love what you guys are doing but you may have forgotten this so i just want to make sure that i put it out there that i hear you and I'm taking, I took it in and totally. Um, so that is my piece of um, 
reflection, let's say, from the last two weeks. So do you want to elaborate on that point a little bit? Like what was what were folks saying specifically about trans men and reproductive rights? Oh, they were just they were just saying that um, for the benefit of everyone. Yes. Yes. They were just saying that it was very women centric. Mm -hmm. And so my thing was, well, my idea of women is not necessarily heteronormative, but that's something I didn't say. Well, so heteronormative is, is one thing, yeah. right? But trans-inclusive is something else. Right. So um, I think that what what happened It might was, be cis-normative. Is, it may have been cis-normative. Yeah. And so, you know, as somebody who is also consistently learning, I just want to put that out there mm-hmm. and just say that I get it. And um, thank you for your feedback. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, Teresa May has resigned as <laughs> I just <laughs> I already heard I, I can already hear your deep breathing like oh. okay so Teresa May has bowed to intense pressure from her own party and announced her resignation uh, as prime minister to take effect on June 7th drawing her turbulent three-year premiership to a close the prime minister listed a series of what she said were Uh, Her government's achievements, including tackling the deficit, reducing unemployment and boosting funding for mental health. But she admitted, quote, it is and will always remain a matter of deep regret to me that I have not been able to deliver Brexit, unquote. So Owen Jones wrote a piece for The Guardian um, on the 24th of May, which was the day that Theresa May um, you know, um, really came out, like announced her resignation, sorry. And, um, he had a very interesting piece, which said, you may find her a tragic figure, even saying to yourself, oh, wasn't she given just such a terrible hand? People might cry. Oh, is it her fault that her backbenchers are such a bunch of Neanderthal extremists? And, quote, it's not her fault. Brexit is such an undeliverable mess, is it? Unquote. But we must see through this. May is the worst prime minister on her, their own terms since Lord North's resignation in the late 18th century when the U.S. colonies declared their independence and May did inherit a terrible hand. She then proceeded to douse it liberally with petrol and set it alight. So um, Owen Jones goes through a few issues specifically. Uh, Some of this uh, was buttressed by us. So I'm going to go, we're just going to talk about it piece point by point. So the hostile, the first point is the hostile environment policy. So the hostile environment policy, which came into effect in October 2010, comprises administrative and legislative um, measures to make staying in the United Kingdom as difficult as possible for people without, quote, leave to remain, unquote, in the hope that they may voluntarily leave. In 2012, The Home Secretary, Theresa May, stated that, quote, the aim is to create here in Britain a really hostile environment 
for illegal immigrants, unquote. The policy was widely seen as being part of a strategy of reducing UK income, sorry, immigration figures to the levels promised in the 2010 Conservative Party election manifesto. Measures introduced by the policy include a legal requirement for landlords, employers, the NHS charities, community interest companies, and banks to carry out ID checks and to refuse services if the individual is unable to prove legal residence in the UK. Landlords, employers, and others are liable to fines of up to £10,000 if they fail to comply with these measures. The policy led to a more complicated application process to get leave to remain and to encourage voluntary deportation. The policy coincided with sharp increases in home office fees for processing quote, leave to remain, unquote, naturalization and registration of citizenship applications. The BBC reported that the Home Office had made a profit of more than £800 million from nationality services between 2011 and 2017. So let's start there. Sure. I mean, yeah, so there's also uh, just a satisfying uh clip of of owen jones sort of giving him a talk back to uh talking back to uh a journalist on a on a panel and and you see like there's been just so much um over the fact that Theresa may cry during her resignation speech or teared up um and you know a lot of uh, a lot of misplaced sympathy and i think really what like what a lot of folks are saying it's not just owen jones but that's just the encapsulation in this in this article but what a lot of folks are are saying and feeling is that you know their humanity is not seen in the same light or given the same airspace and um similarly with a lot of the brexit uh stuff and a lot of theresa may's culpability we've talked there's been a lot about process so many process pieces about um how brexit functions what the what the compromise will be what the um what the deal they were able to hash out will or when it look like what the internal party politics um with uh with the conservatives is like what how it's playing out um and all of those sort of process points have really overshadowed any of the truly human uh conversations and policy oriented conversations about what this has all meant and again the degree of Theresa May's culpability she didn't just wake up and become prime minister overnight right she has a history um as an elected official and specifically as someone in cabinet with a lot of clout over the last decade um and really not not as much has been talked about in terms of her account like her being accountable to those policies but this is actually the first time i've fully um kind of dug into this um hostile environment policy i think i've like read it about it just casually mentioned, but I had no idea um, what a concerted effort it was. And even the fact that people would speak so openly about it yeah. and it really is um, like pre Trumpian in sort of like, let's it's, talk about building a wall and like, let's get these fuckers out of here. It's like just as explicit, if not more so by a government that was in power, you know, as early as 20, at, as early as 2012. Right. So let's look at Mitt Romney mm-hmm. and how Mitt Romney, that was one of his proposals, right. Was to treat immigrants so badly yeah. that they want to, that they would self deport. Right. Yeah. Was, was the strategy yeah, in yeah. 2012. Yeah. I think what we need to recognize is that these, 
these things don't happen in a vacuum. No, and they don't happen because of one monster type figure that we pin all bad things on like Donald Trump, right? Like a lot of these things are um, rooted in a lot of these conservative populist movements. Um, And yes, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, no, no, no. Like I think that um, what we need to realize is that there, like, like you said, Trump isn't the bad man like he is, but he's not. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, the point is you get rid of Trump and there are like 50 others to take over from him. Yeah. It's not as though that every Trump is so bad. Everybody's better. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that this is the idea that people have. So people can rebrand themselves a la John, uh, John Bolton, a la... Uh, Mitt Romney, a la uh, David Frum, and mm-hmm. uh, who's the other idiot there? Um, num, num, num. David, uh, b- 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 New York Times writer. Anyway, sorry. Brooks? Brooks, yes. He's another one. So all of these people are getting are getting these rebrand because they're marginally better right. than Trump. And I'm not even sure how marginally because it's similar policies, just in a better outfit. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think what we have to realize is we have to actually look under the hood and see what these policies are. Just because Mm -hmm. you're named conservative or liberal, as I (laughs) I want to bring up their like shift to the right on refugee policy Mm -hmm. um, that you know, it doesn't matter who's called what. Mm-hmm. What matters is what they stand for. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, carry Yeah, on. for sure. And and uh, these, like, these conversations are happening um, in tandem across different political parties in different countries and then different folks organizing in different spaces. So the, the you know, anti-immigrant movement and this, like, you know, sort of white supremacist um, policy making is happening in a concerted fashion across countries. It's not like a coincidence as well. And it's like important to be like really mindful of that. And, and I think, yeah, it's really easy to brush off what ha- what's happening in the UK as being, um, you know, idiosyncratic to like their specific EU arrangement, but it's, it's, it's not like the, the idea of Brexit is like um, incidental to the underlying uh, hatred and like xenophobia and all of that stuff that's like really brewing like been brewing there and, and sort of has taken a hold right and you know what i find that the uk has some f- you know p- british people have some fucking audacity really to be anti-immigrant like there is an audacity here that's beyond my level of understanding and this is a country for which the sun didn't set on the british empire like the chief colonist in charge, and they're complaining about Emma fucking Grayson. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, this is, this is a country that went out and subjugate and colonize everybody else, and they had a Commonwealth policy of free movement. Yeah. So why all of a sudden yeah. is this too yeah. much for, and, and for you? And they but and they benefited from it. They benefited Finan- financially from it. and otherwise for like and culturally and in and whatever else and any other sort of indicators and now they So when Britain um, did military have, power yeah. being like another key example and yeah, and it's wild. So now it's just yeah. It's so now they have a problem selective. with immigration. Like 
I, I just, it's just this disconnect of like responsibility and accountability that just, it blows my mind. Mm -hmm. And whenever it comes to people and their party, nothing can go wrong in their party. Right. Anyway, let me move on. Hmm. Theresa May is Andrew Shear. That's my little tidbit. Um, we must remember those whose lives have been wrecked by Theresa May's premiership and her inability to stand up to the far right of her party, a la Andrew Shear. So, immigration. There was a pilot scheme to encourage those living illegally in the UK to leave voluntarily, which was called Operation Vacan. Operation Vacan was part of the government's, quote, hostile environment strategy, uh, unquote, first introduced as a phrase by Labour Home Secretary Alan Johnson, then heartily championed by Theresa May in her six years in the Home Office. Now, before anybody says anything about, oh, this is when she was in this position, not that position, it carries. Mm -hmm. It's a common thread, right? And I also want to bring up the Windrush generation in specifically. The Windrush generation refers to immigrants who were invited to immigrate to the UK between 1948 and 1971 from Caribbean countries such as Jamaica, Trinidad, Guyana, and Barbados. The immigrants came at the invitation of the British government, which was facing a labor shortage, speaking of those, you know, mm -hmm. um, benefits that Britain got, due to the destruction caused by World War II. I also want to I also want to mention, too, that in the 1960s, the UK faced a shortage of doctors. Right. And they had and they went to India mm -hmm. to find those doctors. Mm -hmm. So let's let's remember that when Britain needs something, it can always dip into the colonies. But for some reason, that doesn't work both ways. OK, so the 1971 Immigration Act gave Commonwealth citizens who were already living in the UK indefinite leave to remain. A scandal over the treatment of the Windrush generation had been mounting uh, as a multitude of reports had come out about mostly elderly people being denied services. And when I say denied services, I mean like people being denied cancer care right. services. Um, losing their jobs and even facing deportation. In fact, they were even taken to deportation centers. Wow. UK Home Secretary Amber Rudd apologized for the appalling treatment received by some of the Windrush generation and later resigned over the scandal. So in coming back to this, Theresa May as Andrew Shear, I see parallels. And that's why I framed it that way. Because it seems like Andrew Shear is doing everything he can to appear more right of center than um, Maxime Bernier. And I'm not sure how that's going to work out for him in general. Any comments? Yeah, I don't know if it's that he he's trying to appear that way. I think he may just be that way. But um, that's fair. You know, but I think that is a like tactic that he will have to, to play to. At the same time, Trudeau's vulnerable. So there is a benefit in moving to the center. But regardless, I mean, it's it's you look at the policies and you look what they're 
what he's advancing and who he's associating with and who he's not disavowing. And he, and he is, you know, um, part and parcel of this, you know, white supremacist, um, movement that's happening on, um, within right-wing political party that's taking a hold of right-wing political parties. Cause if you're not standing up for it, you're not pushing back. then that is very much an issue. What will be interesting is how, um, I think sheer, um, carries on what Harper and Kenny did in a different way, which is how appealing to immigrant communities, which they conservatives did very well during Harper and Jason Kenny does very well even now. Um, by also balancing uh, that 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 play, and they were all they were typically very good at that. The conservative party traditionally has been, so we'll see if he can manage that balancing act. Mm-hmm. Um, but because that's also when you talk about votes and and pulling the vote in key areas, and you think about GTA, other urban centers, and like or even not even that, but like suburban communities around those sort of core. Um, areas where there are huge conservative um, uh, uh, or have been traditionally conservative strongholds as of late but the populations are um, either new Canadian not necessarily new Canadians but immigrant communities Mm -hmm. and that's that's really where the conservatives have found um, a bit of a foothold in the last like a couple decades so two things number one do you think that's natural well there are a lot of conservative values among a lot of yeah you know, immigrant folks, right? I mean, especially with folks from religious, not necessarily, like not as a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. but I think it's also like just as likely that folks from, you know, immigrant communities, like socially conservative um, backgrounds, you know, I come from a religious sort of socially conservative family, right? Like it's not uncommon that people would vote conservative, but like Arab community very commonly votes conservative, yeah, right? Um, that doesn't shock me at all when you look at like how people grew either. up and like yeah. what just like the yeah. social norms. And then we have like a, you know, we we like small businesses and we like the yeah. rhetoric around, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Like, so all of that stuff works, but I think there's a tipping point where if the conservatives start really leaning into, um, being against certain refugee communities or being against, um, some religious symbols, or, or using the wrong language or you doing it in a way that doesn't work, they may alienate those people. At the same time, there are a lot of immig- like a lot of folks who don't want to be seen as immigrant communities right. and want to be like seen as like, well, we were the ones who followed the rules. We didn't jump the queues and we right. followed the proper order and everybody else who's a queue jumper, like the illegal immigration argument actually does sometimes take hold in immigrant communities mm-hmm. because there is a lot of that, like, well, you did really well and we want, we want, and they'll go into and cons- like conserve Jason Kennedy. Does, like, this is what he does, right? Is like, he goes and he does the pitch of like, we love immigrant communities and he'll do the traditional dress and he'll show up and we like you and you're doing great but we want to preserve the integrity of the system that you came in on right we don't want any of these sorts of kind of lesser f- folks who are queue jumping and aren't, right. aren't contributing you're contributing but we don't know if these people are contributing and trudeau's just a child and he's letting them all in and right like, you know that kind right, of thing right 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 but that's what that's what they you know that's i think that's an important nuance yeah. to bring up because and here's another nuance we don't vote like our immigrant parents vote. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this belief that that conflates visible minority mm-hmm. with new Canadians mm-hmm. and they think we all vote the same. Mm-hmm. But there is um sort of like this millennial um generation 
of of visible minorities, if you want to call it that, who are who are, you know, Canadian basically, right? Um, you know, irrespective of you know, you know, citizenship status or or immigration, but basically grew up here and spent a good part of our lives here, and um, we're different. We don't necessarily, in some cases vote like our parents do yeah but i think that's true regardless of whether you're racialized or not i'm not saying all immigrants vote a particular way no 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 but what i'm saying is like the whole idea of conflating this immigrant with visible minority is excluding that part of the visible minority population Mm -hmm. well and and people who have been here um a long time exactly which is also totally different and i actually think a lot of uh racialized communities um, that are not necess- not immigrant or first or first or second generation immigrant communities, right. but of like long standing. Do that you know that there's even more nuances to parse exactly. out around how they vote yeah. as well. But I mean, all of it's to say, like, let's not take for granted that because someone has a good Im- quote unquote immigration policy that right. they're pulling that particular vote. Right. Um. And I think the conservatives have been really savvy to that. Um, yeah, I think they've done their homework on that. In a way that uh, you don't, I don't see from like political pundits, for example, explaining um, because they lump us all together, basically. And there are a lot of nuances in that group. So uh, moving on, Brexit means Brexit. How many times have we heard that? So Theresa May's allies in the media set about monstering her opponents poisoning the well of political discourse. The notorious, quote, enemies of the people, unquote, Daily Mail front page was penned by James Slack, who promptly became her press secretary. (laughs) The May premiership will be remembered for creating an environment where terms like traitor and saboteur became commonplace. She, too, deliberately stoked a culture war that threatens to consume Britain, most, notorious, most notoriously in her demagogic, if you believe you are a citizen of the world, you are a citizen of nowhere speech. She appointed Boris Johnson as foreign secretary, oh God, antagonizing the EU states with whom she needed to strike a deal and reducing Britain further to the status of a laughingstock. Which, I mean, yeah, I'm with it. I'm with that. <laughs> I mean, she she's she really has used a lot of the rhetoric of the far right when it comes to immigration uh, and when it comes to citizenship. There is this belief by the British, and I remember, like, when I was living in Britain in 2003, um, the there was this rhetoric going around that there are too many people from the EU, from Eastern European countries especially, coming in and, uh, quote, using their their services. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, and I re- remember thinking, but that's the deal you struck. Mm-hmm. So again, it's more of this, it's a lot of friggin' whininess mm-hmm. because their chickens are coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. That's the way I see it. Um, I think what's interesting, too, is kind of I'd like to parse it a bit more is this kind of uh, the complicity of the media, not just complicity, but like 
full on um, kind of taking on the rhetoric of a prime minister, which the you know media's role is to hold them accountable, but like taking it on and then using it for um, headlines, using it to kind of ref- like to frame a debate um, in in favor of what the prime instead of like maybe asking the card questions, right? And like we're seeing so like such a move towards um, media that is really just parroting um, a lot of what's being said, and like in the states, you know, this is taken now to the like nth degree with you know New York Times wasting space essentially just itemizing all of the offensive things donald trump has said about each of his like you know democratic would-be contenders um and like giving you you know infographics of all like the ridiculous things he said um and then on the other hand you have also like the fox newses of the world or or our rebel media and, and then those folks do move pretty free like pretty easily from the realm of being media folks and and so-called journalists um, you know, as the rebel likes to pretend they are to them being, you know, managers and, and, uh, you know, comms folks and chiefs of staff within the conservative party on the, or the Ontario PC party here. Right. And like, we allow that sort of movement and there's really not much scrutiny of it. And I think like that should terrify all of us. We've talked about it more, you know, the Hamish Marshall effect or whatever, but like these people are terrifying. The, um, the the resistance of Canadian media to call out Hamish Marshall is very telling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what the media has done is it has legitimized racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, um, and basically every sort of phobia out there in their rush to, quote, both sides. Yeah. So, which is buried in this assumption of um what of of balance and objectivity that actually does not exist Mm -hmm. and in a way i feel like they are um they are perpetrating a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing they're taking it from the they don't even know where the rhetoric starts so so in the so in our column in the hill times last week we talked about virtue signaling Mm -hmm. and virtue signaling has a very nefarious origin yet i'm seeing the financial post using that right in their in their title right so they're taking without without definition without definition without nuance without contextualizing it yeah or wondering why are people using this term how are they weaponizing it against whom and why and what are the patterns of that yeah exactly but they're just taking it without any scrutiny at all and using it as though it is normal language it is not and that's the problem is that is that the media itself and you know now that we're paying for it as in yeah. with our tax dollars yeah. which is another issue because you know now we're subsidizing right. the media's the national post medias which is wild because it is it's wild. already like a conglomerate so that's been preying on local and killing essentially local industry and we're rewarding it by giving it funds to preserve local media. Like, it's pretty backwards. But I don't know what Pablo Rodriguez, we've, we've the, hysteric, the heritage minister, is thinking. But in terms mm-hmm. of 
um, the way media treats this right wing sort of, you know, collective ideas, they play into it and then wonder why everything's so hostile just to set just to get more clicks. And so the fact that tax dollars are being used on uh, a news side of post media's connection with the United Conservative Party and their um, goal to basically um, suppress environmental activists should scare the fuck out of everybody. Because mm-hmm. guess what? We have just um, subsidized a whole bunch of sponsored posts on the oil industry. So as you mentioned before, this was a tearful speech. Um British commentators and tweeters had almost as much to say about her tears as about the substance of her message. Mm -hmm. She'll be handing over leadership in six weeks. The general sentiment seemed that May was doing something unusual by crying, yet her breakdown puts her in a growing club of politicians who have shed tears in public, including the undeniably cool New York representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and former U.S. President Barack Obama, who famous who was famously open about his emotions, crying at work, which used to be totally taboo, is now more acceptable. Do you believe that? Uh, I don't know that it's totally acceptable. Or is it more acceptable by men? Because I don't know. Like Justin Trudeau teared up after Gord Downey died. Yeah, and there was a whole. I think it depends on the context. I think yeah. people can be a bit more forgiving now. I still think that if you cry as a woman at work, you are doing yourself a disservice. I mean, I'm on the verge of tears all the time, so it's like un- I can't help myself. But um, you know, I don't work in places. I work in places that are majority women and at least and where I work I report immediately to women Mm -hmm. to a woman but I don't think I would uh feel as comfortable with that if I had worked in a kind of a different space or a different workplace I don't think the majority of women feel safe to cry at work or if they cry or supported or seen um or I, I imagine that they are viewed as like you know, in in a less than forgiving light, right? Like as that it is still a sign of weakness. Um, but I do think generally we're moving more towards o- open displays of emotion. But not all displays of emotion are equal, right? Like I don't think Theresa May's, I do believe her tears were, her sadness over losing her position. Uh, I don't think she was like crying because she let anyone down or because like Brexit wasn't the successful thing she hoped it would be or because her she let down her party. I think genuinely she was like, I just lost the sweetest gig in the world. Like I went from like living in this sweet pad and I have to give up this like awesome gig that I worked my whole life for. Uh, probably no one's going to hire me uh, to like to be in cabinet. I don't know if I'll run again. Like that kind of thing like I don't know you know like it, I think it was like a self-serving cry and you know she's entitled to that but mm-hmm. I don't, it does not make her um a sympathetic figure and I don't really think that it needs to be like fodder for as much as it is um only because you know I don't I know I, I don't think she deserves that kind of I sympathy agree. I agree. I mean, I don't, we don't extend that kind of sympathy to most most people. You know, when protesters are out shouting in the streets and displaying anger and other forms of emotion, people deride them and say these people are crazy and why are they out protesting and and like you know whatever whatever it is. Any sh- mo- like emotion is not just crying, right? Like there's a whole gamut of like a spectrum of a human emotion. Yeah, and then people display 
in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, by and large, we're not very sympathetic to any form of, of that kind of range of emotion. Um, and there are a lot of people who have been tearful and angry and expressing all sorts of things um, over the last few years um, in the UK and elsewhere that haven't, you know, and their emotional reactions haven't been, um, you know, the subject of any sort of discussion about why uh, a certain policy is eliciting these types of reactions in people, right? So we're, you know, I don't, I don't really care. She cried when she was yeah, announcing her resignation. I, I don't care either because I care more about the emotions of despair. Yeah. I care about, and it doesn't necessarily have to come from certain people, but just hopelessness and despair hurts my heart. Mm-hmm. And to me, that I'm, I'm good with, you know, expressing emotion, but the only emotion we're allowed to express is anger these days. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's very male in terms of the way. Well, I don't think we're allowed to express anger. I think some people are allowed to express anger. I think that... Do you think you're allowed to express anger? Okay, so... Okay, maybe I should say men are allowed to express yeah. anger. So and probably white men, right? And white like, men. Yeah, right, I still think like the angry minority, angry black, yeah, angry yeah, like yeah, yeah. person of it's color not, is still yeah, like a thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Um, I think, yeah. So white men, when they're angry, they're passionate. Right. And, yeah. you know... They're so passionate. They want to get things done. Like there's all this, these attributable, attributable traits, mm-hmm. you know, put towards yeah. white men and their anger and they're allowed to be passionate mm-hmm. and they, and Oh, look at that passion. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, so passion is okay from them, but mm-hmm. not from em- mm-hmm. anybody else. Well, and I, re- yeah. and I don't think that passion is yeah. necessarily expressed in anger right um someone tweeted something the other day i can't remember who it is otherwise i'd love to attribute them but it was like you never. when was the last time you heard a man referred to as being outspoken like that is often a descriptor that's like reserved for women who speak their mind or you know are vocal or express an opinion period doesn't have to be a particularly you know out their opinion just any opinion and you're like oh she's so outspoken like oh you're an outspoken young lady you know like but you i've literally i sat there and i thought about it and i'm still thinking about it because it's quite the puzzle i literally cannot think of a man that i've ever known or will ever know who has ever been referred to as being outspoken i genuinely can't no i genuinely can't if you're a man who's listening to this and someone has referred to you as being outspoken let me know. I'd be really curious to know the tone and the situation in which and, that arose yeah. because I've never heard that. And I hear people describe me and other women I know like that all the time. Um, it's funny because, you know, um, when I first started in the public service and I would um, express my opinion because apparently I didn't know better. Uh- <laughs> yeah, that's on you. Yeah, that's on me. Um People would say, oh, you're very opinionated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Opinionated is what they use. Oh, you're very opinionated. Oh, you're very opinionated. Yeah, opinionated is worse vi- than outspoken. Yeah. Outspoken at least has the veneer of yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And they're like, oh, you're very opinionated. And I remember saying this to my dad of all people. And he was like, why is that an insult? Mm-hmm. 
It's only when I real like my dad was like, why is that an insult for someone to have an opinion yeah. and to speak it? Yeah. And it's definitely intended in a pejorative way. It because, totally was. Yeah. And a lot of it was from other women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. probably because they're except they're abiding by the expectations that have been set. Of and them. how dare I not abide by those expectations? I think it's more of a frustration, you know, a misdirected frustration. Mm. Um, but, you know, at, and at the end of the day, though, this Theresa May thing, I mean, it's really all about power. Right. Yeah. And she's she's the prime minister. Like, I, you know, and not only it's not like she's like a fly by night person. This is like someone who has been part of the party for a long time, has held, you know, um, significant positions of power for for many years. It's not like she just came in. She was like some underdog you know, candidate for for a prime minister. Um, and and she wields, you know, Enor- enormous and immeasurable frankly power that we can't even uh, comprehend so i'm not i don't think her tears are on the level of talking about tears of, of other people and you know what she said in that fucking statement yeah. about how she fought for people to be regarded as equal yeah. fuck you yeah. Yeah. you did no such thing yeah, yeah. nothing we're in need a fact check on all yeah. of this shit like the, yeah. the amount of time people spent going back and forth about the significance of her crying and like yes there's a leadership aspect like a prime minister president someone crying publicly there's value to it being seen but i also think you know sometimes people use tears and emotion to shield themselves from accountability and that's why there's like an element of her kind of weaponizing her tears to some extent right um to to shield herself from any form of accountability but people cry for all sorts of reasons right like vladimir putin fucking cried when he won his election that he had fucking rigged (laughs) you know like people cry well, I think we need to we need to definitely say that crying is um is is weaponized too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And And um, then she's yeah. passing off statements like this that she believes in equality and yeah. now all of a sudden no, there's no fucking way. No. So No. Anyway, fuck you. That's enough. That's enough time on her. Yeah. So, <laughs> let's go on to some justice issues for Cindy Gladue. So this is a Supreme Court of Canada decision in R.V. Barton. So the Ontario trucker accused of killing Cindy Gladue will face a new trial for manslaughter, reviving a case that unleashed public outrage over how the Indigenous victim was treated by Canada's criminal justice system. And let me just say that I had read a little bit about this and it was appalling. Um, even for me, who knows how shitty the police are. Okay. The Supreme Court of Canada was unanimous Friday in ordering a new trial for Bradley Barton. But justices were split four to three on whether he should face a trial for manslaughter or first degree murder. The court found that the justice system failed to protect Gladue and that so-called rape shield laws were not followed during Barton's trial when the jury heard evidence of Gladue's past sexual activities before holding a separate hearing. Justice Moldover, writing for the majority, said that the justice system failed Gladue and wrote that all individuals deserve to be treated with dignity, humanity, and respect. Quote, her life mattered. She was valued. She was important. She was loved. 
Her status as indigenous as an indigenous woman who performed sex work did not change any of that in the slightest, unquote, he wrote. Quote, but as the reasons show, the criminal justice system did not deliver on its promise to afford her the law's full protection, and as a result, it let her down. As a result, or sorry, indeed, it let us all down, unquote. Now, I would like to know which trial where, uh, with an indigenous victim that the courts have treated fairly, mm-hmm. because... I'm this is becoming more of the norm and not the exception. Yeah. And the justice, I feel, wrote it down as though it was an exception. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's a fair point. That's a very fair critique. And um, it's it's true. Like, I don't I don't know where the justice system actually has been um, successful, but that in terms of what the court's purview is in this decision, it's only to review this decision and this particular set of evidence. And yes, on the books like that, the standard should this well one, the rape shield laws are what they are. They're, they're actually often sort of skirted in, in different ways. And it's, and it's great to have good law now on that section of, of the code. There are a few other, you know, sort of like minor, like smaller legal points, but you're right. Like they're trying to make this, this sort of normative principle that there is like this higher standard or not higher standard, but there is a, a certain expectation of how we should treat um, indigenous litig, uh, not even she's not a litigant in this case, she's a victim of a, of a criminal justice um, whose, whose case is before the criminal justice system. And it's not her case. It's the case of the accused. Um, but that she, you know, she has been, she's been now become the focus of it. Um, to the point that even the evidence of, and we should um, say, you know, I, I've, the the summary of the case is very general, but in talking about it, I think some of there, we might have to talk about some things that are um, difficult to talk about, difficult to hear and somewhat graphic and um, certainly no doubt triggering for survivors of sexual violence of any kind and um, obviously colonial violence. So, you know, maybe fast forward a little bit, but this um, is our trigger warning. Yeah. But it, de- but I mean, this is a situation where um, this woman who's the mother, at least 36 year old indigenous woman, mother of three, you know, a, 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 a person who has ex- experienced like very di- like extreme, extreme violence in this interaction. Her, like the physical, like her vagina, her phys- like if physical remnants were used as evidence and yeah. displayed in the court. Um, it's horrific you know like we're like really weird fucking shit went down in this trial yeah um you know where where else would that have happened um and then and to whom else yeah exactly 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 so you know there's a there's a lot to be said and and this is why the uh cindy's uh gladue's story has resonated with a lot of people um is because it is more it's not an anomaly it is as you say more emblematic of how the justice system um treats folks and it treats indigenous folks and treats indigenous women in particular um and and sex workers this is an important case also about sex workers because that's a part of the sexual history that was reintroduced yeah and even um and sorry i'm sort of going a little bit out of like on a out of order way so i apologize but just sort of kind of going off the cuff here but you may have noticed to a couple uh, when this when the decision came out on friday cbc um posted a, in its summary of the case and i think even in the headline that 
uh, Cindy Cladu's uh, exper- like exper- um, died after rough sex. Yeah. That's how they captioned it, which yeah. is actually the defendant's statement was that she had they had engaged in rough sex, that she had consented to rough sex, that they had had a history of that and and that she had died incidentally that it was an accident. Um, and so that was essentially their defense. And CBC News more or less used that excerpt. So probably partially in part to the fact that there aren't a lot of people qualified enough to like read a legal decision and report on it. Um, and, you know, reporters are like doing this off, like off the top, like they read a decision, they skim it. They don't really know how to read it. You have to like learn how to actually read a decision. I don't want to disparage whoever wrote it or even the editor, but like, honestly, it's kind of amateur still, hour to take what the defense still. defense says and not understand that that is their argument. And exactly. really, the, weren't we just talking yeah. about that in the last, in the last piece about yeah. how the media just takes yeah. this language? Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's, it's, um, and and actually, that was like a key point of what this whole case is about is whether or not that characterization, which was put to the jury without being corrected or or not corrected, but like there were no modifiers. There were actually a few things that the defense said about, um, you know, a mistake around the law, like, you know, anyway, mistaken understanding, having vitiating some sort of consent, like that's not true um, and all sorts of other things, but and misstating the, the different legal tests. And then again, introducing this evidence without, um, without any context to it. And then, and just sort of putting, putting it out there and it's, it's to speak for itself um, without the accounting for rape shield laws or, um, or again, who this, who like, contextualizing um you know sex work and and um and violence against indigenous women and whatever else uh so that was both you know that and that largely fell to the trial judge who failed to do any of those things so that's that's what the retrial is for yes um but yeah i mean a very heartbreaking and and a case um and it shows also how kind of the what happens to victims um, in the criminal justice system, like they don't have a formalized role and they're uh, talked about and they don't, there's no, you know, you are not represented. The crown is representing its case, but you're, you know, you're not there and there's no one to really um, kind of do that. But really essentially what happened they're, was they're not an advocate for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're advocate. They're advocates for the law that has been broken. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for, yeah, the justice to follow and the justice, yeah. the wrong to the society, but not the wrong necessarily to the to, victim. To the victim. Um, Can I just say this? Um, so trigger warning in effect. Um, C- Cindy Gladue died from bleeding to death from an 11 centimeter womb to her vaginal wall. The the amount of rage, the amount of violent Mm -hmm. tendencies, the amount of disregard of humanity Mm -hmm. to the other person that had to be present for that to happen, and that's after he... inserted his fist into her vagina um so those are two separate really violent incidents in in this time frame Mm -hmm. that occurred and he is allowed 
to i mean granted he's allowed to put forth whatever he wants Mm -hmm. but the fact that he was allowed to get away with oh this was rough but consensual says a lot about how the courts view victims Mm -hmm. more than how they view him yeah i mean and and this is a a trial decision so it also says a lot about just people right so was it a jury trial yeah, yeah oh wow okay sorry yeah a jury trial sorry i'm misspeaking all of the place i'm a little sleepy today but yeah so jury trial um so the direction to the jury was what challenged so you challenged the the direction given to the jury by the judge so who didn't properly um uh guide them or, or give them the uh, what we say instructing the jury right and he has to kind of re a trial judge would have to go over the what the evidence that was heard um summarize it for the jury and then summarize the 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 law and and the view of the law and the and and sort of outline the legal issues that they need to to assess and what the tests are and and those weren't properly done um around the rape shield laws and um so how is there a rape shield law and then her sexual past so you can introduce sexual history if it's relevant and so the but argument seems... is the argument was, I think, on on whether or not it was relevant. Yeah. And so he's saying, well, she had consented to all of this other rough sex and like the, you know, and so therefore this was an accident. I was under the mistaken belief that this is what she had wanted. That's the argument of the accused. Do they know for a fact that they, she consented to we don't know. We don't know that. Right. So like that's part of the issue. But the other part is like, again, um sort of the layers of what it means um to ever consent to that level like i think you could say no one would ever consent to that level of violence right like i don't Um, want to take away somebody's agency but it's very difficult for me to think that somebody would consent to a certain level without being and it depends on what we determine as consent because you know is economic coercion is that Mm -hmm. consent you know what i mean so Let's say let's say you're somebody who um, who is a sex worker and you need you don't have money and you have to eat the next day. You might be like, is that consent or is it coercion yeah. or yeah. no, no. And, and and you have to be able to, to suss that out. And I like the you know, there are. So point you have to always be able to withdraw your consent. So if you're harmed to the point that you are unconscious, right, you are then not consenting to anything after you become unconscious, even if you. So this is from a, a previous decision on um, auto like I don't I'm not autoerotic is fixed, but that kind of thing where. Right. Um, it, let's say you say I'm I want you to knock me out. I want to be passed out and you can do whatever to me once I'm passed out. This Supreme Court has said you can't do that. You have to be able to revoke your consent so you cannot effectively ever be unconscious. You have to be able in a position to say no. Same with with intoxication, right? Um, So, you know, there's different ways to look at that. Some people will say, well, no, I if I consent in advance and it's understood that this is what I wanted, then I could be unconscious and I've allowed my partner to engage in whatever activity that I should be allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. But the courts have said, no, you have to be able to withdraw your consent. Mm -hmm. Part of this defense though, was the defense of, um, an honest, uh, but mistaken belief in consent. So that is a defense that's available to people. Um, and in that case, the accused must have an honest, but mistaken belief that the complainant actually communicated its consent, whether by words or conduct. Um, so, you know, 
communicated consent is sort of the operative word that the court now was trying to like suss out and and how was that communicated um and you know it, it is a tricky line of kind of steering clear of like what is assumed and implied consent um and actually looking at consent that as you say like did she actually communicate that she consented not just this sort of like well i assumed i took it for granted right um and you know in relying on prior sexual acts in support of a defense of honest but mistaken belief, um, the accused must be able to explain how and why that evidence informed their honest but mistaken belief that consent was being communicated to the sexual activity in question at the time that it occurred. So there's a lot that you have to establish, not just, well, we did it once, so I just assumed that it was going to happen again. Um, the, refu- the accused cannot rest his defense on the false logic that the complainant's prior sexual activity by reason of their sexual nature made her more likely to have consented to the sexual activity in question on the basis that he believed that she had consented she would have actually had to communicate that again so um an honest but mistaken belief doesn't mean that well just because we did this the other day i believe that you were always going to offer me that consent to do that every time going forward right right um, so that's that's something else. But that was the defense that was advanced. Mm. And and that was sort of how how he was able to get around that. Well, I think there was just a lot of public outrage over the fact that her vaginal tissue was presented in, as evidence. Yeah. And the Supreme Court decision doesn't make note of that and doesn't respond to that. So there, oh, is, really? there is some fear that that is create might create a legal precedent of. Uh, you know, other sort of, yeah, with vaginal tissue or other, uh, you know, biological evidence being being displayed at the um, expense, humiliation and dehumanization of, of victims. Um, but the court doesn't address that directly in, in the decision. Yeah. So uh, the, the four, three split on, um, on, manslaughter or first degree murder i mean both things were put to the jury but the supreme court uh four of three judges found that the instruction that the judge had given to the jury on how to how to assess first degree murder was was accurate so there was no need to revisit that question so he stated the law correctly to the jury Mm -hmm. and they found him not guilty of first degree murder so there's Mm -hmm. no need to put that question of first degree murder to a new trial to a new jury the the issue was the instruction on manslaughter and this defense and the use of rape shield laws and the defense Mm -hmm. um that would have applied to manslaughter and those were not properly not given improper instruction and so that that's what's being sent back there's some dispute about whether or not that was apt um, the rape shield laws obviously would apply as well to the first degree murder mm-hmm. piece, but they're the, these four judges say that didn't influence the jury's result on the first degree murder. Three judges say it did. It's pretty narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of frustration about why he's not being retried on both counts just, um, with, without any evidence of um, that past sexual history. Uh, so it is in that sense, a bit of a mixed result, but, it does at least give pay some decent lip service to um uh the you know what what Cindy Gladu experienced as specifically an indigenous woman well we'll kept, we'll definitely keep you updated on this case through our facebook page um which we will give the address to at the end of this episode and up next rant and receipts <laughs> Now we're back with Rant and Receipts, where we each bring 
a piece to talk about, no, really to rant about, and for the other two to get on board and flex their ranting skills. So, Amy, what do we have? Okay, so a recent study or new poll, studies in excessive use of the term here, (laughs) a new poll shows that one third of uh, folks in Canada support um, a ban or don't want politicians to wear religious symbols. Um, So essentially this poll uh, found that although most Canadians support the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and support the nominal idea of diversity, a third of them would ban elected officials from wearing religious symbols. Um, of course, the majority of those canvassed uh, were uh, a majority of Quebecers canvassed uh, agreed that federal, provincial and local politicians shouldn't be allowed to wear the hijab crucifixes or turbans on the job. Um, and meanwhile, nationally, 49 percent of respondents said they would not favor such a ban. It's important to note that 37 percent, in fact, said they would. 37 percent of people um, supporting any such ban is really troubling, especially when we do have uh, already an elected a number of elected leaders, including, you know, the minister of national defense and, a you know, political party leader um, in Jagmeet Singh, who do wear visible religious symbols in, in, the, in wearing the tur- in turban in both cases, um, you know, Sikh men that we have still still you know, a very um, significant number of people who support that. Uh, some of the survey results are, are interesting too. And like, you know, I mean, it's it's a, it's a sample. Um, it's not fully random. It's hard to calculate margins of error or errors, they say in this. But, you know, some of the results show that, you know, the respondents who said that they interact more or are comfortable around religious minorities are less likely to support banning religious symbols for elected officials. Well, like, yeah, no shit. Um, (laughs) But still a really good reminder too that um, the more that people, um, the more that communities and and regions of the country um, become homogenous or are homogenized, um, the more that we get these types of... um, uh, uh, values being espoused, um, these 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 sort of hateful thoughts being espoused, and and it's not to say that all hatred is born out of um, fear of the unknown. I think that's that's usually the case, it may not always be the case, but at the very least, like exposure, being being in conversation with people, seeing the, like befriending them, not just um, actually getting to to know people. Um, is it really does change mentality, and that's also why like representation in TV and news media and in so in pop culture, all of that matters because it helps us formulate opinions. So you know, if you only see uh, hijabi women in your news coverage of why Saudi Arabia is the worst country in the world, and these folks are just news items that don't have agency, they're not real people to you, don't interact with them, that becomes true. But that's also like the paradox of this whole thing because that's what makes it so frightening. Because the moment that you say we can't have religious symbols in schools or in uh, or religious, uh, sorry, political officials uh, wearing any religious symbols, the more that these things become, uh, you know, outside of like what you interact with daily. So if students go to school and they never have a teacher wears the hijab or a turban or or whatever, um, you know, uh, whatever other symbol, religious symbol, then they are going to become increasingly more um 
uh, alienated from understanding other other people and being able to relate to them. Agreed. And of, of course, the and an additional layer of irony is that you have eighty percent of respondents still saying they have a positive view of the Charter of Rights and Freedom in favor of multiculturalism. Um, and and I think that's why we really need to challenge the idea of multiculturalism, which we, we do habitually on this podcast, um, but like we need to do as a society, because I think people assume that folks support multiculturalism. It sounds good. Diversity sounds good. Uh, but, you know, as we said time and again, that's a diversity that you're like that. Uh, that's still within your comfort zone that people are OK with. If it's a diversity that is still like just you know one or two degrees away removed or something that you think is cool or like a black culture you want to appropriate or like you know you watch drag race and like that's as far as you're willing to get but it's like you actually knowing a trans person or like using you know gender neutral washrooms or like having friends who wear the hijab or going to a mosque with a friend or or knowing where in your community these spaces are like that like actually knowing is different and like actually interacting with things but like if at a cursor like superficial level you're like yeah i'm cool with diversity uh, but you're not actually ha- engaging with it in any real way. Like it's just your how whatever you're comfortable with. Of course, you're gonna say s- stupid shit like I don't want to see religious symbols. You know what I I my my question my litmus test question is like, okay, you're cool with diversity and multiculturalism, but to add in a power context to it. Mm-hmm. So if somebody was above you, right, who wore a hijab. If your boss or your yeah, boss's yeah, yeah. boss yeah. wore a hijab, then how comfortable would yeah, you be? Yeah, 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 totally. And I don't think, I think Canadians are really good at being like, we love everybody, blah, 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 until those people start to gain power mm-hmm. and then it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So Canadians are really good at saying, oh, we love, well, less so now, which I find funny. But, um, uh, oh, well, let's, Yay, Syrian refugees, yay, or yay, this person, yay, look, we're good, look, we're not America, look, look, mm-hmm. look, look mm-hmm. at us, mm-hmm. uh, until those people start gaining power, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, a refugee, or what, yeah, want something different than or, what you had or, wanted right, for them, right, exactly, that's another thing, what if they want something not what you have prescribed to them, or, or want something out of the context in which you believe they should w- they should act mm-hmm. and that's where the problem comes in mm-hmm. it's and then that's where you get the ungratefulness yeah, yeah. that we heard during the whole Jody Wilson Raybould um scandal uh, uh i you know thing is because you know it's this idea of you not being grateful because we were so nice to you and and how dare you bite the hand that feeds you mm-hmm. and so it's this bite the hand that feeds you idea of what um repre- what diversity looks like um but you know coming back to the religious symbols issue i think it's really interesting um that we have as a country, we're getting more secular, but that really is um, a white settler ideal is to become kind of a religious, right? Because then everything will be solved. And so I find, but we, the immigrant populations or maybe a piece of the immigrant populations where 
where religion plays a central role is is i would say growing i don't have um i don't have stacks to back it up but let's say it's more than when you only used to accept english people let's say let's just say that and um i find it I just wonder at the back of my mind when that's going to come to a loggerhead where you have this um, sort of religious focused part of the population, but the larger part of the population, the white population is like, we don't want religion. Well, some of them. Well, I think the, some okay, of I them. mean, I think you have to reframe that because the, I don't, not all religion is, is everything but christianity right so there's still a huge portion of white christians oh yeah who are so it's not like religion is every other religion and then the default is whiteness right no 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 no, i know that's what you're saying but it's really funny that in these surveys they throw in like people wearing crucifixes because i give i i guarantee you if you parse out do you care about crucifixes oh separate and then a separate question about turbans and then a separate question about the hijab you can get wildly different results we're not talking about crucifixes um if people aren't actually as secular as they say they are they're actually just like christian first or christianity in the background and they don't want to think about it they don't want to rename the names of the streets they don't want to like rename you know they don't want to um take away public funding from the Catholic school system. They don't want all of these desecularizing Christian things. They only want to take away the freedom of religion from people practicing non-Christian religious, um, like religion. So That's where really does what Judaism fall into this um, sort of context then? Well, I mean, it's 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 part of it too, right? So wearing any religious symbols, Jewish religious symbols are captured by that too. And there is an increase in anti-Semitism. That's part of that. Mm-hmm. So the, the but... The, what I'm saying is the majority of these people are not thinking about Christianity when they answer these surveys. So I agree that they're not thinking about Christianity, but a lot of them kind of are not necessarily practicing it either. No, but they're also not live to it too. Right. They're not live to all the places it emerges in their lives. Right. People are like, not like, you know, Christianity is in the background of everything that happens. Right. You know? Right. In, in this country. It just is. And right. no one gives that a second thought. No, they don't. Because no one it's says the default. I, no right? one says, I want politicians to stop thanking God in all of their speeches. Yeah. But every politician is going around, you know, thanking God. Wow. A lot, a lot do. People do. And they... They and, do. Um, I see they, it a lot less in Canada than I do in the sure. States. Sure. Let's put it that way. Sure, but it does happen. Yeah, and no, there no, are there are Christian that. there are Christian religious symbols ev- for everywhere, yeah. and there is a very vocal Christian um, movement that's that's happening, and there are a lot of especially on the right, and there are and then there are the like structural things that you know, especially Catholicism has it's a place that Catholicism has. Um, especially in public education, mm-hmm. um, that we don't that goes unchallenged, right? And people will say, "Well, you know, that was a constitutional compromise that was made, but you know, so is freedom of religion." But no one talks about that in the same way. Mm-hmm. It's not the boogeyman that all other religious um, symbols or, or practice, like pra- open practicing of your faith, is. 
unless they're unless they're accepted by the white majority so think of buddhi buddhism for example yeah that's like acceptable in in a way Mm -hmm. you know because it's been appropriated Mm -hmm. but um there are i do agree that there are certain religions that are put on notice as you know as as you know out of fear out of power out of out of out of geopolitical issues whatever um sure it just seems to me that there's 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 this the amount of times i hear about you know religion and how you're stupid to be religious and all this stuff and i'm just like okay like mm-hmm. you know i i just I just think that there is, there are people there are populations there are people who for whom it's important mm-hmm. and to, yeah, yeah no I understand what you're saying yeah, yeah and yeah. to dismiss them as just you know stupid um, stupid people who don't understand science mm-hmm. is what is basically what I'm speaking to mm-hmm. in that part mm-hmm. and so um, I find that horrific but i also find the other the other part that's horrific (laughs) is the other side of the coin so you know being from alberta like i've seen i've heard the nut the nutty religious shit Mm -hmm. you know and i'm just like oh my god oh my gosh so like i i get like that they're two extremes what i would personally like to see would be i mean are we not okay with the charter? Well, I think that the chart, like, so that's the thing. 80% of respondents say they they like the charter of rights and freedom. And the thing is people don't really know how the charter functions. Um, they people, just like that. It's pe- there. People pick and choose though, what they, th- what they think it means. Right. Mm-hmm. So people love to pick out freedom of speech, which is actually not in the charter It's freedom of expression, but they like to say freedom of speech, we don't really understand what these terms mean. They think freedom of expression is an unfettered right. It's not. Um, people, you know, there are a lot of women who like to say, and there are a lot of charter, ad- like people who are advocating for a ban on religious symbols, speaking as if they're speaking on behalf of women and what it does to oppress women. And they think that they're making a charter values argument because of the just the prohibition against discriminating against women. But they forget that that is also part of the same section section 15 that also grants you know freedom from discrimination for on the basis of religion and that none there's no hierarchy of rights right Mm -hmm. so there's no we we don't there's no you know women on top and everybody else on uh, underneath right um and there is a lot of there is a bit of a balancing act that goes into that but it's all about you know how do we least infringe on um uh, on these things and how does the, the state not discriminate against people and again it's not about um, individuals it is about the state and state policies um, controlling um, and potentially discriminating against individuals uh, these are not nuances these are frankly just the basics of the charter but most people don't know or appreciate that they like the idea of their own individual rights and freedoms they don't think about what that mean that their individual rights and freedoms may come into conflict or may have different um, you know, there may be some give and take with another person's individual rights and freedoms, right? Right. And that's also part of the issue of how the charter is drafted is that it is individualistic. It's about individual rights. So there was, you know, at the time that the charter 
came into there were the pre-charter negotiations and discussions about economic rights and other social rights now collective rights essentially we don't have that in the charter we moved away from that how different is it from the british north american act before it uh well it is it's different in that in that sense in that individualistic versus um, collective there's no real like the bna act just gives you the breakdown of the um jurisdictions Mm. it's not there's not much there was a there was a code a federal code on rights and freedoms or something to that effect the bill of uh, like a bill of rights type Mm -hmm. thing but it wasn't constitutional and now it has like has a much higher standing so no in the the charter is is really its own creation Mm -hmm. um and the the thing and other than um the rights for um uh, Aboriginal people in art, like in Section Thirty Five of the Charter, everything else is individual. Um, so you know you don't. You, so it is all like it. So if you're reading it for yourself, mm-hmm. you can read it very differently than having to think about what does this mean for my neighbor and other people's right. working. We're you know in a in a more um, collective sense. How does this all play together? So everyone likes the idea that they personally will not be encroached upon by the government if they can and they can say whatever they want and they b- believe whatever they want and you know be born wherever and marry whoever and all of these things. But they don't want to think they we know if there's something that they're they they're at issue with i don't think people often think well what does this mean for that person's charter rights necessarily right gotcha um so um in terms of i think you said something very important which was this is about how your interaction with the state mm -hmm. so when people talk about a freedom of speech him andrew Shear, jordan peterson everybody on that in that ilk um they're not actually talking about our charter right no and number two like unless the government is coming in and telling twitter please delete they are the fucking government like well almost but they're part of the government but carry on who andrew shear yeah 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 yeah. yeah. but they're not right in in law and they're not but like let's say the government passes a law that says andrew shear can't have twitter then that would be one thing. Mm-hmm. But Twitter saying you can't have hate speech, they're not. But like, let's say Twitter was going to enforce hate speech laws or not even hate speech laws, their own code of conduct on Twitter. That's not an encroachment on freedom of speech. So in other words, nobody owes you a platform. No. The school doesn't owe you a platform. You're not entitled to be invited you're, you well, can the school, be disinvited. Arguably, the school might owe you a platform, depending on the school and the degree of control the government has over the school. Ah, because the school can be an agent of the state. A, a school could be bound by the charter in certain cases. Interesting. Depending, again, yeah, on the degree that it is okay. a public entity. So, the, in other words, there's an argument there. Just because of maybe there's an argument there, but even then, most schools, most universities, like if we're talking about, so if we're talking about elementary schools, high schools, where the funding is almost completely government funding, I think you have a different argument about charter mm. rights, right? But if you're talk and in even then, I'm not fully necessarily sure that that's the case. And again, we're only talking, um, yeah. So so I'm not fully sure that that's that's the case, mm. but yeah, with universities, less so. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, in other words, 
what everybody's yeah we can set different spaces can set their own rules and regulations and the only thing is they can't discriminate Mm -hmm. because they're bound by provincial statutes which are not constitutional documents but also but still you know quasi arguably quasi constitutional documents human rights codes that set out similar parameters not around freedom of speech or expression but around discrimination discrimination right so that's actually the duty that they're more likely to owe than one to create a positive platform of for all. And really a, creating a, giving you a platform is different than denying you space to express. So you don't you're not owed you don't have a positive obligation to have a platform for freedom of expression. So you're mm-hmm. not entitled to the government subsidizing a space for you to go and express the speech that you want. Right. But you're what the charter says is that you are protected from an infringement on your expression. Right. So they can't come and and you know rem, you know remove you. Right. So right. Um, that would be yeah laws around uh, prevent yeah anyway so well we can go into a rabbit hole of like yeah. analogies <laughs> but yeah. yeah all right so. Um, my, uh, rant and receipts has to do with Lyft and according to regulatory filings, Lyft has, so this was in the LA times, um, Lyft has tens of thousands of cars available to drivers in 30 cities across the U S for short term rental. The company says those in its express drive program have earned more than $1 billion since its launch in 2016. As of March 2019, more than 180,000 people had rented a car through Express Drive, and two-thirds of those drivers did not originally have a car that qualified. So advertisements for Lyft stated that drivers could make a comfortable living driving for the ride-hailing service, and Lyft would would rent them a car that met the company's specs. For many who struggled to find steady work, the car they rented from Lyft became more than its source of in- income. It was also their home, and Lyft is asking for it back. So Lyft and its rival Uber have struggled to retain enough drivers to meet demand. As the companies have sought to expand their fleets, they have tried to recruit workers whose vehicles wouldn't pass company requirements or those who don't have a car at all both offer short-term car rental agreements to a range of people including those who might have poor credit or who are definite desperately in need of a flexible income stream so some struggling drivers who rent through lyft's express drive programs say it has made them made it difficult for them to get back on their feet Documents show those drivers are paid less per mile than Lyft drivers who use their own cars or cars leased through dealerships. That makes it harder to offset Lyft's rental and insurance payments in some markets, which start at $219 a week and rise as high as $479 a week in New York, for example. By comparison, Ride-hailing drivers in some markets who rent a comparable car from a dealership can pay less than $160 per week, including the cost of insurance. Lyft also imposes unique restrictions on drivers who rent cars through its express drive program, mandating they provide 20 rides a week to keep the car 
and prohibiting them from making money using their vehicles to work for other services. Until the weekly rental fee is paid, Lyft puts a hold on drivers' accounts, preventing them from withdrawing any income. So, holy fuck. Yeah, that's wild. That's crazy. And, um, you know, this is just another example how, um, how different industries, especially um, emerging industries, mm-hmm. are setting up their models to keep people poor hmm. and to keep them dependent right. on that job. Yeah, it has a very um, sort of dystopian feel, kind of like um, my favorite movie of last year was Sorry to Bother You. And I don't know if you've seen it, but um, it's amazing and everyone should watch it. Um, Sorry to Bother You. you. It's directed by Bootsy Riley. It stars like Keith Sanfield um, and um, it's essentially set in a alternate like near future dystopian version of Oakland um where there's a company that um god i can't remember what it's called but essentially like their whole model is that you live and work there and they house you and they have this charismatic ceo who's played by army hammer and he plays it like really well in this like just very smarmy way but he's like really selling it and it's essentially you live there in bunk beds with like a bunch of other workers and they have like this at promotional video and everyone's like yeah this is where we live and this is where we eat and it's like the same bunk and then they like work there and it's like indentured slavery for this company mm-hmm. but they're billing it as like this is the way to live now because you can't afford to live anywhere else and and uh, the main character um cash is green uh Sandoval's character works at a, a call center um and tries to uh, selling space like selling uh, this company essentially Mm -hmm. um and it's a really brilliant movie about like race and politics and gentrification sorry to bother you and gentrification and and these new businesses but it's also really quirky and weird and disturbing and funny and i really recommend it but this is sort of what it makes me think of and it's actually like not too far off like these types not like you know that and that analogy is actually not too far from from the reality that we have which is um yeah well i you know when we talk about income inequality and wage stagnation and blah 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 like this is part of it Mm -hmm. you know it's the fact that i mean first of all we were all bamboozled by this gig economy business Mm -hmm. okay so let's just put that out there yeah um it was a scam yeah to get us to work more and get paid less yeah and well a lot of things are scams thinking about it today too like the gig economy um all that like any talk of like side hustles any talk of hustle alone the hustle porn yeah, yeah it's all just bullshit capitalist bullshit that's sold to us as being somehow empowering mm-hmm. and like you need to be your own brand and like sell yourself and also have five jobs and really like you're still like no one's their own boss but you want you're trying to like be your own boss and like really you're reporting to these companies all the time whether yeah. whether you're running a business on like a social media platform that is somewhat your own business or you are working directly for you know this company and any other sort of like direct service sort of platform like app platform you mm-hmm. are still 
just working for the man in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just a, like a per, more perverse version of capitalism that makes us think that we have some agency in it. And yeah, it's just yeah. like all one big delusion. And then it's like, you know, um, Alex Ohanian Sr., uh, Serena's husband, um, yeah. <laughs> well, has, has Sorry, really... that's the only way I know him. Yeah. <laughs> you have to properly call him by his real title. Which <laughs> is Serena's husband. Um, who is also the co-founder of Reddit has been talking about this a lot and about how he was, you know, he believed in that culture for a long time too and how it has, you know, increased his anxiety and like mental health issues and, and stuff like that. And he's really, really, um, uh, you know, uh, like using his Twitter platform to really call that out. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's a reason that people are starting to unionize again. Totally. I was going to say the same thing. So (laughs) every now and then I know people are so, yeah, it's like shocking. People are finally realizing that benefits and like time off are not things that you can just get or take for granted. That's right. Um, and I don't think that's a fault of individuals. I think, I think we were fed this idea that you have to make a trade off. There's always a trade off between your independence, um, and, you know, office jobs are terrible or, or certain jobs are not good for you or whatever else that you you want as much personal cachet and, and independence when really it was just a way for them not to pay you full wages. Right. Full time, either whether it's full time wages, move you to precarious contracts, um, not give you benefits. Bec- oh, well, you now you can pick whatever insurer you want. <laughs> so it's great because you choose yeah. which body parts you think are worth being covered based on what you can afford. Like, and you're all like, oh yeah, I guess choice is good. And you're like, no, <laughs> we, we just pay for all of them as a matter of like my entitlement. You choose wages. your own yeah. body part. But Woo! it's like, but that, you know, for some reason that, that sentiment like it's did true. take a hold, right? It's, and then we're wondering why uh, in the United States, what do they, what do they say that's um, socialist policies? And when I say socialist, I, I, do, I'm, I'm repeating the media word and I don't really think that's actual socialism, yeah, yeah. but you know, let's say democratic socialist, right. um, you know, uh, policies because people are fucking tired of working three jobs just to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, you know, and then a lot of states didn't take the Medicare expansion for Obamacare. So that's another story. So if you're living in one of those states, you have no right. If you're a woman, you're fucked. Mm -hmm. If you, so you have no rights. You have the, you have to live under the Clinton welfare reform bill yeah the rolling stone had a really good story it was a long read a while ago about you know uh a young woman who um you know who had all this promise you know when she was 20 she had her shit together whatever uh met a guy got pregnant had the child and just all the steps Mm -hmm. the services what she could apply for what she couldn't apply for and honestly, it was it was it was yeah, sad yeah. because well, she couldn't get an abortion, right? And then, um, and then you know, her Starbucks job that was doing well for her when she was single, mm-hmm. she now has a baby, um, and you know, she 
childcare comes into into play, and then hours worked in response to welfare, right? Um, back to work welfare, yeah. uh, reform that came out of Bill Clinton years, right? Is another story. So yeah. she qualifies for X, but doesn't qualify for Y, and it's this ad hoc piecemeal of services that she has to navigate on a bus with a transit system that doesn't even work properly yeah yeah and yeah and we're not immune to that here i was even overhearing a conversation the other day with some folks just on literally on the bus being like it is like a full-time job just to apply to oas odsp like all of these things that i need to like get my shit together because i'm not i can't be working right now i'm disabled whatever else like these types of um regimes are actually yeah quite quite onerous to take part in yeah um yeah yeah far from the handouts that they're often referred to as what i was just thinking too is like what is the the implication um to for like the public like public um systems and services when you have um a tax base that's like sort of decreasing to like the more that that's people a great have point. the more that people have like fractured like fractured and smaller um uh like payroll um and also i'm not even clear on it whether or not lyft and uber like what they're what how easily they're taxed here and how well we are like able to capture like what you know what they're producing um into 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 what how what they're paying out in taxes but like you think of like the the less people make the less likely there is also for there to be public housing um available for them other types of resources um available payments into um different welfare programs and whatnot so like not just based on the individual but just like in society as a whole you know if people are making less globally we're, we're we're also making less collectively as a society, right? Yeah, and I think that that needs to be worked into the math. Yeah, and that's part of what people say, like the this the state ends up paying for these types of jobs because we still have to create um, top ups for people's income, um, you know, provide health healthcare benefits um, in different ways because there isn't preventative healthcare through. Um, medication and other forms of private insurance that employers should be providing and and in fact like we're subsidizing companies like Lyft and Uber Mm -hmm. um, that pay piddly wages uh, because then we have to provide public uh, public services um, social services uh, for low-income workers when essentially like their employer should just be paying them a living and decent wage you know and that's what you know when with the um with Amazon opening its its dis- distribution center here in Ottawa and everybody hailing it like it's some um, you know great you know accomplishment mm-hmm. and and I'm wondering what they're paying what kind yeah. of benefits they offer yeah and Is, they have a notoriously bad track record they have a horrible track record the daily had a really good um episode once where it actually talked to a woman um, who saw her coworker fall from a heart attack and literally right. they walked over her. Yeah, they told them, I think I remember hearing this, essentially were like, you can't help her get back like on the yeah, line. Yeah, get back to work. Yeah. You know, and we like it's the accountability aspect or lack thereof is very important to remind people that. Uh, not all jobs are the same. Mm-hmm. 
And just because a politician opens their mouths or a company opens their mouths and says jobs doesn't mean it's a net benefit. Right. That's a good point. So anyway, so on that note, we will close it off here. Uh, Welcome back, Amy. Thank you. Good to be back. And uh, I also want to say that the Raptors won last (laughs) night game six. So congratulations to the Raptors. Um, And, you know, we'll be following them on their, you know, on their finals run. So congratulations to the Eastern Conference champions. Uh, And Drake was also out in full effect being well, Drake. So anyway, uh, also, I have another announcement. Our live show is June 7th. That's right, June 7th. So by the time you hear this, it will be, well, those of you who are subscribed and listen to it on Tuesday when it drops. So today would be the 28th. Today as in when it drops, not when we record it. So um, a week and a half, basically. Tickets are at Eventbrite. Uh, Please check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash bad and be podcast. We will have the Eventbrite link there. We'll pin it to the pin it to the top so that you guys can find it easily. But come out and join us. Tickets are $12. And, um, yeah, enjoy our live commentary. Or, and, you can find us at Twitter, at Bad and Bitchy, Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, email badandbpod at gmail.com, Patreon, patreon.com slash badandbitchy, and we have merch, redbubble.com slash people slash badandbitchy. All right, everybody, see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad and bullshit.